So uh, we are rapidly approaching Seder night, the holiday of Pesach, the uh, festival of our freedom. That's how it's referred to in the Torah. So the first thing we need to tell everybody, not only our children, the Torah refers to the uh, holiday as Chag Hamatzis. Why is it Chag Hamatzis, the festival of the matzah? Because God can't get over the fact that we followed him into the desert without preparing any food, just with matzah. In fact, it wasn't even matzah yet. It was raw dough that eventually became matzah. So that trust, that loyalty, is what God keeps referring to. This will be the celebration of your devotion, of your willingness to trust me and follow me into the desert without worrying about what's going to be. But traditionally, we refer to it, of course, as the holiday of Pesach. What does Pesach mean? Skipping over. Because we can get over the fact that God selected us from among the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians were being punished and the plague of the firstborn was, uh, was happening, the houses, the homes of the Jewish firstborn were skipped over. So we can't get over the fact that God did this for us. So the first thing we know about this holiday is that it's a mutual admiration. God can't get over our uh, devotion to him, and we can't get over God's devotion to us. So it's very personal. It wasn't just a matter of justice, you know, defending the underdog, liberating the slaves. That could be very impersonal, just righteous. But this was personal. And that's why we're still celebrating it. If, if it was just a matter of freedom, you know, it's been 3,000 years. Why are we still celebrating freedom from slavery when it's been 3,000 years since we've been slaves? Eventually, you kind of get over it, no? What we don't want to get over and we can't get over is God's devotion and personal interest in us. So he didn't just get us out of Egypt and then send us on our own way to make our own future or fortune or whatever. He had a plan. Even the message to Pharaoh was, let my people go so they can serve me. I have a job for them. I have a mission for them. I need them for my purposes. And so they got to get out of Egypt. Not only to get away from the evil, but to enter into this special relationship with God. That we can never get over. Because that's what makes us Jewish to this very day. That's who we are. So our identity began when God took us out of Egypt. It was cemented when God gave us the Torah 50 days later at Mount Sinai. So that should be the orientation. Another very important thing is the plagues 
and this is particularly relevant to children. It's rather entertaining, and I remember when I was a kid, uh, reading and, and, and studying about the 10 plagues. You know, it's, it's like a very exciting movie with special effects and all sorts of, and watching the bad guys suffer, or just hearing about it, of course, um, children love it. It's like Home Alone. The movie Home Alone. Seeing the, the bad guys get beaten up over and over and over. Especially the frogs. Oh, that was that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> the problem is that that's <clears throat> that's not where the focus should be. It's a bit of a distraction from the whole story. In fact, we should ask the question: Why ten plagues? The last plague, the 10th, did the trick. So why not skip the first nine? Also, what is it about the 10th plague that suddenly changed Pharaoh from, uh, from a, uh, an irrational dictator to suddenly a reasonable human being. What did that? Why 10 plagues? Just pick the one that's gonna work and do it. The 10 plagues, by the way, took 10 months. Only one plague per month. So for 10 months, the entire country of Egypt suffered horribly. What, 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 why? So when children get excited about the 10 plagues, we should use that as a learning opportunity, a teaching opportunity. Why 10 plagues? What is, what is God playing with them? So if you read the text carefully, when, when Moshe first comes to Pharaoh and says, the God of Israel says, let my people go to serve me, Pharaoh mm -hmm. says, who, who, who is that? Who is the God of Israel? Never heard of him. And therefore, I have no reason to listen to him, and I'm not going to let the people go. But by the final plague, Pharaoh actually says, God is right, and I was wrong. You must go. And the Torah describes it as Pharaoh sent us. He didn't just allow us to go. He sent us. So quite a change. Religiously, spiritually, Pharaoh went from a non-believer to not only a believer, but an obeyer. If God really wants you to go, you got to go. So it seems like the plagues were not simply revenge or, or having fun at somebody's expense. Each plague removed a layer of callousness, a layer of, of uh, stubbornness, of arrogance. And each layer brought the Egyptians closer to the realization, to the recognition of the God of Israel. So it was actually a refining process. You see that after a certain number of plagues, the Egyptians came to, it, to Pharaoh and said, this really is the finger of God. Don't you, don't you see it? So you watch the progress of Egypt as a country, as a people, getting to recognize God and uh, getting to take him seriously. Egypt at the time was the most 
vile of all countries, the most sophisticated, the most advanced technologically and so on, medicine, but also the most vile, the lowest. Their behavior was extremely immoral and fueled partly by their successes. They were so arrogant about their achievements. Something like um, the Nazis, the German arrogance. They were so sophisticated in science and philosophy and technology, in the arts, and yet so immoral, so callous, so ungodly. So that was Egypt at the time. And by the end of the 10th plague, it was a different country. So that's, that's a learning opportunity for the children to say, yes, it was so amazing. The frogs were everywhere. And, and the darkness and people could, and all the animals in the world overrun the country. It was, it was awesome. But that's not the point. The point is, whatever God does, it's for the benefit of the people, not, not for the fun of the revenge. We need to make that very, very clear. Now, the entire avoidance of chametz, of anything leaven, which we go to an extreme, any question, any doubt, any slight suspicion that maybe this is not fit for Passover, we, we avoid it. It's extreme, but for a reason. You see, the idea of leaven versus uh, actual bread that rises is the difference between humility and arrogance. The rising, the puffing up of bread, which we enjoy all year round, is a certain kind of arrogance. Whereas the matzah, the flat bread, is simple. There's no rising, and that represents humility. Interesting thing about humility, by the way. In all things, we're supposed to be rational. We're supposed to be middle of the road, not too far to the right, not too far to the left. We're supposed to be reasonable. Like, for example, should we be Stingy or generous? You got to be in the middle. If you're too stingy, you're, it's not good. If you're too generous, you're going to end up with nothing and you're going to ruin your life. So you got to be reasonably generous. Not over. You don't give more than 20% of your earnings. You give at least 10% to charity, but not more than 20%. So you got to be reasonable, middle of the road, moderate in all ways. In terms of uh, discipline, perfection, driven to perfection can be very bad. Sloppy and careless is also very bad. Got to be in the middle. But when it comes to humility, we are told to go to the extreme. Do not be moderately humble. I guess you could say moderately humble is a little arrogant. <laughs> Why? Why is humility the exception? You have to go to the opposite extreme. So that even a crumb, a crumb of leavened stuff is, is, is terrible and, and inappropriate and forbidden on, on Pesach. A crumb? But you see, if we understand the problem, we can better understand the solution.
arrogance is not reasonable. For example, somebody makes a comment about you that is obviously true, but not complimentary. Not terribly insulting, not, not, not insulting at all. You say to a guy, um, oh, you're not as tall as what's his name. You're not as tall as what's his name. Is there an insult implied here? Is this an attack? And yet your ego is bruised. In fact, it goes even further than that. Somebody says, what's his name is so tall. And that's it, your ego is bruised. Well, what about me? You say, I met a guy who is so smart and you feel insulted. In other words, the ego is completely irrational and, and, and disproportionate. So that even a microaggression hurts the ego. So to say you should be moderately egotistical, there's no such thing. The ego does not know what moderate means. The ego is a hypersensitive um, reflex. And therefore, if you're going to balance the irrational and, and hypersensitive ego, you got to go to the opposite extreme. Because it's one extreme or the other. So it's not like you can be moderately arrogant, but you should be immoderately humble. No, they're, they're perfectly matched. Humility means it's not about me. It's not about me. That's an extreme. But, but, but that's the only response to ego that says everything's about me. Everything's about me. Every song has to be about me. So here's another thing to teach children. We are going to avoid all leaven stuff for eight days. Why? Because we have to learn to not be arrogant. And arrogant doesn't mean I think I'm the greatest. Not everybody is that um, is that out of touch with reality. I don't think I'm the greatest. I think I'm the most important. So that even if you're talking about somebody else's greatness, it'll bother me because shouldn't it be about me? Am I not the greatest? In importance. So any suggestion that I am less important than I think I am disturbs me. Particularly men. Very fragile. So how do we explain to children that they should be able to really appreciate hearing a compliment about their friend? Why doesn't that feel good to you? Yeah, isn't it nice? He is such a smart boy. He succeeded. He, got, he won a prize. He, everybody loves him. Isn't that nice? Why does that make you feel bad? And how wrong is it to feel bad when somebody else succeeds, when somebody else has good news? Why is that even tolerable? How could we be comfortable with ourselves with that kind of an attitude? <clears throat> so arrogance is completely unnecessary. You don't need to be moderately arrogant. Absolutely unnecessary. 
And that opens you up to what life is really all about. What keeps you limited and, and, uh, and handicapped about life is the obsession with self. Me, mine, everything is me and mine. You can point out, and this is a very good idea in general, you point out to a 10-year-old, just picking a number, you pick out, you point, you point to a 10-year-old, and you say, look, look, look at your baby brother, who is four. Look at it, everything is his. Everything's about him. I want, it's mine, I have to have it. That's so childish, isn't it? And you point that out to a 10-year-old. And you say, thank God you outgrown that. You're not, you're not like a four-year-old. That's, that's important progress in every area of life. It's not about me. Well, if it's not about me, then what is it about? It's about living out the purpose for which we were created. That's, that's the bottom line. What was so great about coming out of Egypt? It was where we were headed. We weren't just leaving Egypt to wander in the desert. We left Egypt to get to Mount Sinai. And we came to Mount Sinai to find out what our service of God is all about. Not to make our own lives better, to make the world better for its creator. So we are on a very noble mission. And even children have a big effect on the world. And you can point out to the children of all ages. What keeps human beings somewhat responsible and moral? When, when things are not going so well, when the temptation to be immoral is strong and the opportunity to get away with it is strong, what keeps us as moral as we are? children. We can't imagine doing that to our children. The environmentalist is not worried about his own health. He's worried about the world our children are going to have to live in. We have a sensitivity to children, even when other sensitivities are gone. That, that's our, our, our safety zone. When we become corrupt and we become arrogant beyond belief and just want to do everything for ourselves, our children stop us in our tracks and say, wait, 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 can't do that to the children. Not only your own children, to the children of the world. So children, even without knowing it, have a very moralizing effect on, on human beings. If we weren't parents, if we weren't aware of the children, we would be worse than we are, which is pretty bad. So children have a very powerful effect. Their innocence brings out the innocence in us, in the adults. It brings back our own innocence. We were all children once, and we were all innocent ones. So, children have to be aware of the significance of the, of the uh, role, of the importance to God, which makes it unnecessary to have a good ego, a healthy ego, a good self-image, a high self-image. Not necessary. If I know what I'm here for, 
and I am here for the ultimate purpose and mission, I don't need an ego. I have my identity. And I know what I'm about. And that's much more powerful than a good, healthy ego. Although the rest of the year, we do eat bread. We do allow a certain amount of ego. As long as it doesn't cripple us or distract us from our mission. Keeping things in focus. So how do we do that? For eight days, we have no ego at all just to remind us that it is not necessary. It can be used like anything else, it can be used for the good. So if it motivates you to fulfill your mission more, better, that's great. If not, do without it. It is not a, an indispensable part of life, it's just one of the many tools. Like wealth, you don't have to be rich. But if you are, you use it properly, it gets you to places you couldn't get to without it. So it's a very good tool. But if you think that it's the end result, that being wealthy is the ultimate achievement in life, then, then you, gotta, you gotta get rid of it. Then it's too destructive. <clears throat> okay, so a tiny bit of arrogance <clears throat> is too much because arrogance doesn't, doesn't come in shades. It's always extreme. Me before anyone else. This year we have the virus to point to and children understand it very well. This thing that everybody's worried about that people are getting sick and people are, are not even surviving often, what is it? What is this thing? What, is, what, what, what are we fighting? A tiny microscopic scoundrel called a virus. Microscopic. So all of a sudden, tiny things cannot be ignored or dismissed lightly. So a tiny piece of hummus, size is not the issue. Little things can be very powerful, like ego. A slight offense, a microaggression can ruin your life. So we need to balance that. We shouldn't be that vulnerable, that fragile. So here's the message to the children of all ages. We are not as fragile as we think. We're not as vulnerable as we feel. Because even if our ego is shattered completely, as long as I know what God needs from me, I can have a perfectly satisfying, fulfilling and meaningful life. Because to know what I'm here for is much more powerful than to know what I'm best at. In fact, I don't need to be best at anything. Like the famous story with Zebzusia, I'm not afraid that they're going to ask me why I wasn't Moses or why I wasn't Avraham or the Baal Shem Tov. I'm worried they're going to ask me why wasn't I Zusia? Why didn't I just do what I was meant to do? Not competing with greatness. Okay, so at the Seder, we encourage children to ask questions more than the rest of the year. Because we want to tell them all of this wisdom in response to their curiosity. Because if they're not curious and they don't ask a question, you never know whether they're listening. So you can be saying the smartest, wisest things in the world. You don't know if they're listening, if anything is being absorbed at all. But when they ask a question, then you know they're listening, at least for the first, first five minutes. 
And if they like the answer, they're going to ask another question. And you've got a really good conversation going. That is the best learning um, experience. Question and answer. The question actually inspires the answer. And then the answer inspires the questioner. So it's, it's, it's the real thing. That's called learning. That's called educating. That's called growing. It is traditional to teach the youngest child who can memorize the four questions and then ask them at the Seder. So I just want to say something about the table. Very important for families to eat together at least one meal a day. The dining table has to be protected. It has to be set aside from the rest of the day. It has to be a safe zone in today's language. When children come to the table, they have to feel absolutely safe. Just so that the eating is healthy, if, if nothing more. But the table should be a time when children can feel absolutely safe and secure, which means never criticize children at the table. Never. Children need to know that at the table they will not be criticized. They will not be questioned, interrogated. They will not be put on the spot. They can relax. It is a safe time. Family enjoying each other's company. And you got to be really careful with that. Not even a microaggression. Not at the table. Table is family time. Not a time to air your objections or your disappointments or your suspicions. So be careful not to put ch children on the spot by asking, questioning. Even if you don't mean to put them on the spot, but be sensitive. If it can be interpreted that way by the children, then avoid it. There should be nothing but compliments, mutual affection, mutual admiration, nothing but safe stuff. That's every meal. A Seder meal, wow. Not only should children feel safe, they should feel important. Seder cannot happen without the children asking the four questions. The whole Seder and the telling of the story with the Haggadah, the whole thing is designed to answer a child's question. As the Torah says, when your child will ask you what happened with Egypt, here is what you need to tell them. So the children are the centerpiece of the Seder. To ignore them, to make them feel unnecessary or a burden or an annoyance, ruins the whole thing. So children memorize the four questions and then they get to stand up in front of everybody and ask the four questions. And no matter how well or how poorly they do, they're, they're the heroes. Children are the center of almost every holiday, but it's most visible on Pesach. 
Shavuos, for example, the anniversary of receiving the Torah, children are the center of attention because if it weren't for the children, God would not have given us the Torah. But that's not visible. There's no great expression of that. There's no way for the children to demonstrate their significance in the receiving of the Torah. For that, you have to learn. You learn it. But it is not visible. At the Seder table, it is visible. And it should be very prominent. So any question the child asks, even if it's not one of the four, should be answered seriously, respectfully, respectful of the question, so that a child knows that they are important to the family, to the Jewish people, to the God who gave us the Torah. Everything we do is an occasion for teaching learning moment at the Seder. And in the process, we learn something too. Every time. Every time you answer a child's question, you learn something valuable. Even something you already knew but didn't realize how significant it really is, how meaningful it really is. So we're always gaining something by teaching something, and especially to children, young children. One example, final thought. A youngster that I was speaking to asked a question that blew my mind a long time ago. And I'm really grateful that, uh, that that happened. We were talking about right and wrong. You know, is it wrong to do this? Is it wrong to do that? And then this young girl asked the question, so what if it's wrong? What's wrong with wrong? There are good girls. They do everything good. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're the wonderful. Everybody talks about them. They're so good. They're so perfect. They're so, they are. They are. But what's so good about that? What's so good about being a good girl? What's so wrong about being wrong? See, the way we teach, the way we are taught in school and at home, you got to be right and you should not be wrong. You got to be good, don't be bad. And we go with it. We accept that assumption and we go with it for the rest of our lives. This question stopped me in my tracks. You talk about what's right and what's wrong and how beautiful and how ugly. And really, can you explain what's wrong with being wrong? And the way the girl asked the question was, the only thing that it affects is your reputation. If you're good, you get a reputation of being good. If you're bad, you get a reputation of being bad. So it's all about reputation. It's all about what others think of you. I don't care what people think of me. So now is being wrong still wrong? So yeah, everybody will think I'm bad. Everyone will know I'm bad. I don't care. So if the only damage, if the only fallout 
of being bad is my reputation, I don't see what's so wrong with being wrong. What an amazing question. I've never heard an adult ask that question. So what if I'm bad? See, most adults will say, what's so bad about committing adultery? It's not that bad. Nobody says it is bad, but so what? What's bad about, what makes bad, bad? What makes good, good? See, that's why the only, the only answer, the only correct answer, people go looking for physical benefits. Oh, keeping kosher is a good discipline. If you eat non-kosher, you're undisciplined. So it's discipline that is the issue, not kosher. Observing Shabbos means you get to spend time with your family. So family is the issue, not Shabbos. So it's never really bad in and of itself. It, it has consequences. It's the consequence. But then if you don't care about the consequence, you don't have a family. Should you still observe Shabbos? You're a very disciplined person without keeping kosher. You don't need more discipline. So should you still keep kosher? Going, going to the mikveh protects you from cervical cancer. I, I, I. That's not answering the question. Is good really good and is bad really bad? I know getting sick is bad, but, the, but that's not answering the question. The only answer which should have been clear right from the start. The creator of the world has a vested interest in his creation. Everything that happens matters to him. Everything a child says, everything a child does, everything a child thinks, it's all God's creation. It is so meaningful to him. There are those things that promote and further God's purpose in creation. It leads to the fulfillment of his, of his vision for which he created the world. And there are those things that get in the way. They move the world in a bad direction. Bad for whom? For the creator So what is wrong with wrong? Not my reputation, not my reward or punishment. I don't need to find consequences to me because it isn't about me. I didn't create the world. I don't have this vision of how the world is meant to be. I'm here to partner with God in his vision, in his creation, in his vast eternal plan. So when I look at a mitzvah, good or bad, right or wrong, holy or unholy, it's not about me. So the fact that I don't see any consequence, of course not. It was never about you. On the other hand, when you're doing for God, there will be positive consequences even for you. That's the perk. And if you're going against God's plan, somehow it'll make you feel worse or set you back as well as the rest of the world in, in some subtle way. 
because if you're on God on the same page with God, you you tend to do better. If you're on the wrong page, it feels wrong. You're doing wrong by him. This we need to teach children to take seriously. A child makes a bracha on a cookie, what's the big deal? Don't compliment the child. Oh, you make a bracha so nicely. Compliment the bracha, not the child. Let the child know that what they just did was meaningful and significant, infinitely beyond anything we can imagine. Because to God, that was exactly the right thing to do. Eating without a bracha, to God, that's disappointing and painful. It is so crucial in today's world, in today's confused world, where ego is everything to the point where we're sick of it. We're drowning in, 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 in this hypersensitivity where everything is about me and every little slight that destroys me and makes me suicidal because my life stinks and I hate it and I hate you and I hate everybody. That is so unnecessary. And it happens because we lost our focus. So I'm sure you may have heard the story, but if you haven't, it's, it's a good, useful. This 12-year-old girl got it into her head that God was angry at her. And she was very upset about it. Her father asked me to speak to her. So I asked her, you, you really think God is angry at you? She says, yes. I said, I'm jealous. How does a 12-year-old become so important that something you did or said can make God angry? Wow. How did you become that important? So you see, importance doesn't come from ego. Importance, significance comes from the role you play in the vast eternal plan. Something you do can get God angry. Well, then something you do can make God thrilled beyond words. That's what makes us significant. You don't need ego. Ego is so fragile. It's so weak to have a good ego. It is. You have a healthy ego. You think you're a great kid because you're doing very well in grade school. You're a popular kid, smart kid, get good grades. Then you go into high school and everybody is so much smarter than you and more popular than you. Now what? Or you do well in high school, but then you get to college. People are smarter than you, stronger than you, cap more capable than you. Now what? The ego is such a poor... Um, source of strength. On the contrary, it weakens you. It sets you up for disappointment. Unless you're so insanely egotistical that nobody is ever smarter than you, nobody is ever prettier than you, nobody is ever more popular than you. Well, it's ridiculous. And so we are relying on our very life, our well-being, we are relying on something that is so fragile that it weakens us. I wonder we're a mess. Use the Seder to show children that they need not be so fragile because it's not really about us. It's about what we do for him.
That's real freedom. Freedom from our own weakness. <clears throat> freedom from our own trap, where we get so absorbed and so preoccupied with ourselves that we undermine our own existence. Thinking we're giving ourselves a good self-image, a high self-image, we validate ourselves yeah, until somebody comes along and makes a comment and all of a sudden you're shattered. So let's get free. Let's get healthy. Matzah brings health because matzah takes you beyond yourself. So enjoy your children, enjoy the Seder, enjoy Pesach, enjoy keeping away from bread and leavened stuff and come out after eight days healthier, cleaner, freer, wiser, and happier. We have a Sunday night program for VIPs that you might be interested in. It's informal. It's questions and answers. It's conversation. It's really relaxed. It's really pleasant, enjoyable, informative, and uh, kind of community-like. It's a Sunday night program. There's a um, Wednesday morning program for the VIPs, and there's a Wednesday night program. All of it, just conversation, casual, laid back, unscripted. So join us, take a look, click uh, the link below and see which, which of the three suits you best and join us for some enjoyable conversation.